Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the definition, discussion, and explanation of justification continues. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Justified Part 2. Well, Romans chapter 3, beginning or continuing to study through this book together, drinking up just every drop of amazing grace that's here. We're going to read verses 21 to 28 and then pray and ask for God's help. So Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, after spending about two chapters showing that all of mankind is under the law of God, and all of mankind has broken the law of God, and therefore all of mankind is guilty by the law of God and has a right, no righteousness of their own. Now we come to verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Please pray with me. Oh God, I cry out and ask that you will do what only you can do. Lord, we need miracles to take place right now. We need supernatural work. We need that which is beyond what we are capable of. Oh Lord, for you to cast light on your word, for you to give understanding, for you to show things, oh God. Lord, if you were to leave us without your spirit, if you were to leave us without actively right now coming and giving aid and help, this will completely go over our heads. We might intellectually get it, but we will not be changed by it. We will not be set, set on fire with worship by it. And so God, we ask that you will come now. Father, a group of your sons and daughters have gathered. We're crying out to you, show us, show us more of you. Show us your truth. Show us your glory. Show us the wonders of what you have done in saving souls, your greatest work of history. And God, stir worship through it, we pray. God, and I also ask for any in the room that is not yet born again, not yet justified, not yet adopted into your family because they have not yet turned to Christ. God, I pray that you will do that work of opening eyes, of drawing to yourself, of showing them the danger they are in, showing them 
where they are headed apart from you. A hell that burns for eternity. And God, you will turn their hearts to you. Please bring that about. Work what only you can do. Please, God, give me help to teach, preach. Set a guard over my lips. Enable me to speak truth. Please bless this time. We ask this through Christ. Amen. Well, last Sunday, what we did with this text, big text, lots being said as well as words we don't use on a regular basis. We just kind of looked at an overview of those things. We walked slowly through the text, looked at what the words meant, looked at definitions, just, just made sure we understand the flow. And, and I just want to give the encouragement. If you were not able to be here last Sunday, please somehow get the notes, listen online, something, not because anything I said is so important, but the truth that is here, this is your life. This is your life. This is your life. The truths that are here are at the center of what God has communicated to mankind. And so we continue this week to work through and see the big truths that are here that other places in the Bible will spend chapter upon chapter further explaining that's going on. So I told you that this week what we would do is I'd show you kind of the outline of a breakdown, the points that are here. So let's do that for just a second. If you got your bulletins, and you look on the back in the notes section there, uh, you can take a look. What the text does is it gives a central idea statement, and then it just simply teaches truths that connect to that central idea. I think that there are 11 of them. You could word them different. You could combine some of them. I got it divided up into 11 statements, 11 truths that support the one central idea statement. So in your bulletins there, I've given the very first paragraph you have is a definition of the word justification. We're going to get to that a little bit later. Okay. So just hang in there. And by the, by the way, if you're new to all this and some of the words we're using kind of freak you out, okay, don't, don't, don't get freaked out. This is, we're going to get to all of it. Propitiation, justification. We're going to explain these things and going to go slow with it. So first you've got a definition of justification and then 11 points after that. Here's what I believe the central idea statement is from the passage. Justification before God is available from God. So that's kind of the central idea. And then here are 11 statements about that. Number one, this justification is a declared righteousness. We're going to get to that. Number two, this justification is available apart from works. Number three, this justification is available through faith alone. Number four, this justification is available in Christ alone. Number five, this justification is available to all. Number six, this justification is needed by all. Number seven, this justification is available as a gift of grace. Number eight, this justification is available because of the redemption purchased by Christ in his propitiation for sins. Number nine, this justification vindicates the righteousness of God. Number 10, this justification glorifies God and him alone. And then number 11, this justification prohibits the boasting of men. That very first one that I mentioned there, that is um, a, a bigger one. 
It's what's going to kind of help us understand the rest of what's said there. So what I want to do this morning is just look at this first statement that this justification offered by God is a declared righteousness. What does that mean? That's what I want to look at this morning so that we understand it. We will not take one week for each of these, like spend 11 or 12 weeks working through just these eight verses. It won't go that slow, but this one is big enough. We need to understand this. And if I could just say just maybe kind of one word kind of at the beginning as we, as we walk through this kind of stuff. There's kind of a, there's kind of a, a theme that we see that rolls through the culture we're in, that if somebody is able to kind of preach in a way that gets everybody excited and is real winsome and a real good speaker has a gift of speaking, it really doesn't matter what they say, they'll gain a following. And that's stupid. That's unintelligent. Like even a, a boring preacher, if he's preaching truths, if he's telling you God, if he's showing you the scriptures, that's where we ought to run and flock to. Some Sunday mornings we come here and, and what we look at, it is really exciting and it's just really hope filling uh, truths and things. And that is all through this text. But I also am going to tell you this. I am asking you because the Bible is calling on you to think really deeply in these kinds of things, to think in technicalities, to at times spend nights, sleepless nights, thinking on the word of how does this detail, how does it work out in these kinds of things? That's not always exciting and popular, but this is what God is speaking from heaven and showing you. So, so today I, I am asking you to lean in and see, see the depths and some of the complicated things that God shows here. To study this first truth, this justification is a declared righteousness. I want to do it by asking three questions of the text and of this truth. Number one, what is, what is righteousness? Number two, what is justification? And then number three, do I really need to know this? So let's get started working through this. So here's the first question to kind of understand what's happening here. What is righteousness? Well, look at verses 21 and 22 here again. Let's just refresh ourselves in, in the specific verses that we're going to be looking at. Verse 21, but now apart from the law, meaning apart from works, apart from your ability to be good and obey enough to be righteous, apart from that, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's being shown, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning even in the Old Testament, this was shown. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The heart of the text is that there is a righteousness that you do not have, but it's available to you. God will give it to you. So before we can decide how important that is, we need to ask the question, like, what is righteousness? Well, we briefly defined it last Sunday in kind of the overview. And here, here are some of the things that we said. There, there are three important things I'd like you to hang on to. So this is like subpoint within a subpoint within a subpoint here, okay? So three things to hang on to to understand the word righteousness. The first is that, that righteousness is to be in the right. Just, just very simply, if you're not wrong, if you're not in this place of condemnation or evil, you're in the place of being in the right. Righteousness is being in the right because you are morally upright. That's the second thing. And then the third thing, 
If you are in the right, morally upright, then you are right with God. To be in the right with a human is a whole lot easier than to be in the right with the God who is perfectly, completely, absolutely upright. The God who is holy, holy, holy is unwilling to bless unrighteous people. And what we've seen the last couple chapters of the book of Romans show is, is carefully walk us through so that we see before God, I am not in the right. Like I would, I would venture to say that there is none among us in this room who is completely, absolutely righteous, even when it comes to the laws of men. That there's no one who has violated any jot or tittle that's there. Never one time gone one mile per hour over the speed limit. Even amongst the laws of men, we have not lived up to absolute perfection. And the law of man is a reduced version of the law of God. Before God, we have broken his law and therefore not in the right. Our God is a God who is righteous, rejoices in righteousness, and will never do anything unrighteous, and he also will not bless unrighteousness. And that's a good thing. Can we just for a moment kind of pause and have a little bit of like a, a moment of worship to say thank you to God that he's like that? That our God is not like crooked politicians? Can you rejoice that our God is not a judge? who favors whoever slips him the money or whatever decision is going to make him popular or favors the beautiful or the rich? Can we rejoice that our God is not like wicked men? He's faithful to his covenants, his promises. Christian, your eternity is based on that. Your, your eternity is based on the fact that not only is God merciful, that he sent Christ, drew you into salvation, your eternity is also based on the fact that God's not going to get tired of you and quit. That he's going to keep and be faithful to the covenant promises he has made. That's good news. Our God is righteous. But that also means this. God's righteousness means that he loves and he rejoices in what is pure and what is good. And he hates what is unrighteous. He despises, he loathes with an intensity. You have never hated anything. He hates all that is unright. Christian, you, you and I are called by God to love what is good and hate what is evil. And since you've turned to Christ, okay, so if you're genuinely a believer, you have genuinely been converted, okay, you've made progress in that. There are many things we hate. There are many evils that we hate. But let's be honest, there are quite a few sins we struggle in the fact that we don't hate, and we should. We hate murder. We hate abortion. We hate rape. We hate it when children are harmed, but we struggle to hate greed and coveting, and whatever for you and for me, whatever that sin is that's, that's, that's kind of like our biggest weakness and we kind of keep it around as like a, a pet sin, we struggle to hate it. But God hates all that is not right. And sins that we think of as small, He hates passionately. Now, now listen, I do not believe that God hates all sin equally. 
That, 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 I think that's an error that gets spread around with Christians sometimes. You hear that sometimes a Christian will say, well, all sins are exactly the same. I, I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. What I see is that God hates certain sins according to their severity and different degrees that are there. But even sins that you and I think of as small, God hates. He is righteous. And what that means is we are unable to be right with God because you and I are unrighteous. Adam and Eve were created morally upright. They were given the capacity to continue to live in moral uprightness. It was part of how they were made in God's image. Part of how Adam and Eve were made in God's image is that their character was like God's character. They needed to mature, but they had no sin. They were innocent of breaking God's law, but in the fall, in the disobedience to God, that moral uprightness became unrighteousness and therefore mankind lost fellowship, lost the ultimate blessing of God and the ultimate blessing of God is life in connection with him. Listen, listen friends, life comes because of connection with God. Even those who despise God and they are not attached to him through Christ, the only way their physical bodies continue to live is because God in grace has continued to flow grace to them and sustain their heartbeats, sustain their breathing. But the, the life indeed, eternal life, that which is truly life comes only in connection with him who is the fountain of life and joy. In our sin, we have become, become cut off from him. We are separated from him, separated from eternal life. The only way that we could get that life, eternal life, is to somehow get tapped back into the fountain, somehow get attached to God once again. But God will not allow that to any who are unrighteous. Somehow we would have to acquire a righteousness. We would have to acquire a right standing in order to be connected with him again. The gospel, this message that the Bible calls the gospel, the message of Christ is the message of how God has made that possible. If I am a sinner separated from God unrighteous, how can I get right with him again? That's the message of the gospel. And it hinges on righteousness. So here's number two. What is justification? Let me say it simply, and then we're going to try to go deeper with it. You know, every, every concept of the Bible, um, there's a way that it can be explained in a general kind of way, but then there's their depths to it. Jesus loves you is a simple truth, but you will spend the rest of your life exploring the depths of it. Justification is a pretty simple concept, but then we're going to, we're going to, going to go deeper to try to understand all of it. To be justified means simply to be declared not guilty. It means that you're declared innocent. You are exoner exonerated. You're not condemned. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. To be condemned means you are called guilty and therefore you will bear those punishments. To be justified is to be declared not guilty. This is a legal term. B by the way, it's just if you think about this, our concept of this earth of justice, like courtrooms and judges and things like that, we didn't come up with that. That's God. 
God is the one who created that into the world. God is the one who spoke it into existence. We're shown that the day of judgment is going to proceed like a courtroom. That there is an accusation. There is a judge. There are witnesses. Jesus spoke like this all the time. Jesus said things like, your deeds that you have done on the day of judgment will be brought forward as evidence. Witnesses. Jesus even said to some who rejected him after hearing the gospel that Sodom and Gomorrah will stand up at the judgment and give testimony to things. Our concept of justice has come from scripture. The day of judgment is going to proceed like a hearing and you are on trial. Can you just take a moment then to shudder in terror? You will be on trial. Your deeds will be brought forward. All of your sin, all of your unrighteousness will be read off. Oh, what a terrifying thought. On that day, how will you fare? Will you be condemned or will you be justified? The gospel is about how God has made a way in Christ for you to be justified and you to have that promise right now for your justification to apply to you right now, to be called innocent now. To be justified before God is to be declared not guilty, innocent of breaking his laws for mankind. We used the illustration last week in this word of a, a police officer who has a suspect pull a gun on him. If the police officer shoots the suspect, there will be an investigation they will determine whether or not his actions were within the law or if those actions broke the law. Well, because the suspect pulled a gun on him, when the officer fires, his actions are within the law. So he will be declared justified, not guilty. He'll be declared innocent of breaking the law. That's this term. We, we use it in many different kinds of ways. We talk about someone justifying their sin. Think about what that means. If I justify sin to myself, basically what I am doing is I'm, I'm bending the truth. I'm twisting the Bible so that I do not feel guilty about some evil thing that I have done. Jesus used this term to, towards the Pharisees. He said, you are those who justify yourselves. You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But justification before God in the ultimate sense is when God says that you're innocent, that you will not be condemned. It is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is what happens at the moment you turn to Christ in faith. So when we say that whenever you hear the message of Christ and you hear about your need of salvation and you see there is a way I can be saved and his name is Jesus. And whenever you turn to Christ in faith and you have repentance towards God, at that moment when you are forgiven of your sins, we oftentimes speak of it like that. That is part of your justification. Sometimes when we ask a person, um, we learn that someone is a Christian, we come to believe them, and we may ask them the question, when were you saved? If you know. A more precise way of wording that is, when were you justified? 
Because that is the moment that it takes place. But by the way, let me also say this, lest you think, oh man, I've been using the word wrongly. No, no, no. The Bible will also use the word saved in that kind of way as well. The Bible will say that someone was saved at a, at a moment, that kind of thing. So justification and saved are sometimes used interchangeably. But you also need to know this, the word salvation in scripture is a word that's used kind of like an umbrella term that refers to every step in the process of your entire redemption. All that has been involved in God bringing you to himself. You know, we, we sometimes, you know, boil this down and say something like, I got saved, but there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. We're shown dozens of things that are all happening in this. Before the world was even made, God predestined a people to salvation. And if you are a Christian, there was a moment in time when you heard the message of Jesus. Maybe you heard it many times, but there was a moment in time that you heard the message of the gospel and something was different. Something happened. You were awakened. For the first time, you took interest in it. Maybe on all the other occasions you didn't care, but there was one hearing of the gospel where for some reason... You saw, I need this and I want this. What the Bible says that is, is the new birth. That's the opening of the eyes. That's the awakening. And then God helped you to believe. God called you to himself. The Bible shows this, this word, effectual calling, this drawing by name, not just in a general way, but God came to you specifically. The Holy Spirit works supernaturally, invisibly to draw you to himself. And in all of these things, by the way, happening in ways that we don't understand and it's all invisible, you're helped to believe. And in the moment that you responded, you turned in repentance, you trusted in Christ, you received Christ by faith in that moment, at the moment of you responding in faith, that's when justification occurred. Now there's even more that the Bible shows. We're going to go on in the book of Romans to see that there's part of your salvation that is still continuing to happen. That confuses people sometimes that the Bible says you're still being saved. Wait a second. I thought I was saved in the past. What do you mean I'm still being saved? You have been justified. You have been given the guarantee if you are truly in Christ. But there's a process happening right now that the Bible calls sanctification. The process of being sanctified, being made holy. And the Bible says it is part of your overall sanctification. And then the day will come whenever you pass through the threshold of the door and you are all the way in and your salvation is finished. You are finally saved. All of that is all encompassed in what salvation is. So it's important that we understand that justification is one part of that. It is the declaration of God that you are forgiven and right at the moment you have turned to Christ in faith. We call that the golden chain of salvation. If you look at Romans 8, 28 to uh, like 30 there, you see that process outlined in Scripture. To be justified is to be called right with God. So all of that is saying it simply. You're not guilty. You're in the right. You're innocent. But let's take a little step into deeper territory now. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. Look over to Romans chapter 4 for a moment as, as this argument will continue. Romans chapter 4, find verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, 
has found. By the way, this is looking back to the book of Genesis. Part of the point here is that this has been being shown since the very first book of the Bible. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he was not. But what Scripture is doing here is saying, let's, let's play along. If he was justified by works, his obedience, his goodness, then he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That statement right there, credited to him as righteousness, or righteousness imputed to him, counted as righteous, that is the language of justification. It is to say that you are righteous in the eyes of God. That police officer who's justified, another way of saying that is, in regards to the law of man, he's righteous. He's in the right. In fact, in the Greek language, you can see this in the words. The word for righteousness in the Greek is dikaiosune. The word for justified is dikaio. It's the same root word. It's just put into a verb form. God has righteousified the one who has faith in Jesus. But righteousified, righteousifier, righteousification, those are not real English words. We're just making them up as we go. We have justification. Okay, so understand that in the Greek language, there's not this big difference between justice and righteousness, so that they're the same word. When we were down in Belize and explaining the book of Romans to them, we found that in Spanish, they also used the same word, justicio, but it did become a little confusing to explain the difference between justice, like in a courtroom, and righteousness being declared by God. So I do think it is helpful that English has brought a little bit of differentiation in the words that are there. Here's how the uh, Baptist Catechism puts it. This is the definition I have for you on the back of your bulletins. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is an incredibly helpful definition. As your pastor, can I ask you to please memorize it? Get this language in your head so that when you encounter the word in the Bible, just instantly the definition is there. Let me talk through just a couple parts of it that are all significant. Justification is an act, not a process. Does that make sense, the difference? Sanctification is a process. Justification is an act. It happens in a moment. You can't be halfway justified. You can, you're all or nothing. You can be in different degrees sanctified, but not justified. It's all or nothing. So it is an act, not a process, like Abraham being counted as right in a moment, like the thief on the cross in a moment was made right with God. It is of God's grace, not of our merit, not a result of our works. It is a gift wherein he pardons all our sin. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. And this is how we're made righteous, innocent, because my sins, which make me guilty before God, are removed. My guilt has been placed onto Christ. My sins have been pardoned. It is like the record of all of your sins. By the way, there is one. Revelation speaks of the books being opened. 
the record of all of your sins. It's like those pages have been ripped out and then were nailed to the cross. And when Jesus went to the grave, he left them there. By the way, that's not just a clever illustration I came up with. I'm not that smart. The book of Colossians says this. The book of Colossians says that the records of your wrong deeds, they've been nailed to the cross. That's amazing. Counted as there. How is this possible? By Christ's work on the cross. And then this is an important last one here. Jesus's righteousness counted as mine. I do not want you to miss this last part here. There's another aspect of this. The first one is more obvious than the second. The first one is our sins, if you are in Christ, our sins have been counted as on Christ. But there's another dimension here. Jesus came to the earth and didn't just live for one day and then die. He lived the life of a man. He kept the law of God. He obeyed God perfectly. And his law keeping... His obedience, His righteousness is counted as ours. So that when God looks on you, He is not looking on you as a sinner. Your sin has been removed and we have been, here's more biblical language even from the Old Testament, we have been wrapped in the robes of righteousness. Like Jesus' obedience and law keeping has been wrapped around you so that when the Father looks on you, He sees the righteousness of His Son. My sins counted on Christ, Christ's righteousness counted on ours. It is important that you see that this righteousness does not come from within you. It is from outside and counted as yours. So I will use, sometimes use this language of an alien righteousness. It ain't yours. It has come to you by faith in Christ. Well, let me show you this to you in some other passages of the Bible. Philippians chapter 3 for a moment, if you will. What, one more thing that I want to say is, if this is your first time to learn this, then this seems complicated, and you might be thinking that this is kind of some obscure part of the gospel. But what I want to tell you is, this is really part of the heart of the gospel. It's not the only part, but it is part of the heart of the gospel. And once you learn this and you read the Bible every day, because please tell me you are, you read the Bible every single day, you're going to start seeing this everywhere. You're going to start seeing that it's implied in passages that maybe don't spell it out, but you are going to see that it is spelled out in half a dozen to a dozen passages in the Bible. Philippians 3 verse 9. After Paul saying that I count all things to be lost so that I can have Christ, verse 9, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, meaning derived by my works of obedience, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There it is, spelled out. Uh, jump to 2 Corinthians for a moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, look at the double counting, the double substitution that is explained in this passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become 
the righteousness of God in him. You have become the righteousness of God by Christ coming to you. The hymns that we sing, this is all in there. If this is your first time learning this, a whole lot of hymns are going to become more beautiful to you. You're going to sing them with a renewed worship because you're like, hey, that's, that's Romans 3. And like seeing this is the how of how I've been made right with God. His righteousness coming to us. Uh, look at another one, Romans chapter 8, going back to the book. Romans 8, look at verse 3. Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh. Pause there for a second. The law is not evil. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. But what is a problem is that we are unable to keep it. The law does not save. The law offers life to the one who obeys it. But it offers condemnation to the one who breaks it. The law doesn't save. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Here's the other way. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here's the deal. You were born under the law of God. You have broken the law of God. You are guilty by the law of God. The only way for you to be right with God is if somehow the law is fulfilled. So if I've broken it, how can it be fulfilled? The answer is Christ fulfilled it for you. Your sin deserved a death. A death has been offered. Your sin deserved blood to be spilt. Blood has been spilt on your behalf. And the only way for obedience to be offered unto God, Jesus did what we could not do. So there's a simple way to say all of this. Justified means to be not guilty. And then there's a more complicated, deeper way looking at all the righteousness and how the law has been fulfilled, all of these deep kinds of things. But the righteousness of God has been upheld. Well, let's, let's continue on here. Let me come to this last point here. Do I really need to know this? Do I really need to know this? How important is it that we get this right? Like how much does this matter? What is the weight of these things? Well, Christian, you know that you need every single sentence, every single phrase of the Bible. You, you know that. You know that the early church met together every single day of the week to hear hours and hours of preaching because they comprehended this is your life. This is our life. When God outlines what your life should look like, it includes hours, deep times of wrestling with the scriptures and just a quick application. That's why as a church, we have these, all of these opportunities that we do for you to come and hear preaching and teaching. We don't do that because I'm bored. I promise. We do that because this is your life. This is your life. This is your life. The scriptures are the how of how God leads you into his purposes for your life. You need every single drop, every phrase, every jot, every tittle of the scriptures. But there are some truths which are at the center. They have the most weight. And you can't. You can't get them wrong or you shipwreck. 
The gospel is in that category. The gospel is in the category that you get it wrong and it's devastating. It's devastating for your health, your vitality. Every truth of God con contributes to your joy. The New Testament is just all the time saying that the preaching and teaching, you learning the scriptures is for your joy and the gospel is at the heart of that. Theological precision. So this precision, these details we're talking about, it's not all of Christianity. There's more, there's obedience to the word, service, love, worship. The word is meant to bring you to know God. So it's not just about armchair theology. Like we don't study these things so you can go home and sit in your chair and judge other people. We don't learn these things so that you can do well at Bible trivia. We don't learn these things so that you can grow arrogant or so that you think Christianity is all about just Bible study. That's not it. But the word of God is the how. The word of God is the how for how God transforms you, for how God builds you up for how God strengthens you, makes you holy. Listen to me, the word of God is the how of where the zeal comes from. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the great heroes of history, the Adoniram Judsons who went to foreign lands, who suffered for decades, watched their children die of disease, took beatings, were in prison, died gruesome deaths, and yet kept on trucking and with joy. What gives a man that kind of tenacity? It's not shallow churchianity. It's not Sunday only attendance. Your heroes of the faith rose at four in the morning and spent the first hours of their day pouring over the scriptures and wrestling for theological precision and that transformed them. Do you see the connection here? Theological precision is not all of Christianity, but I need you to hear this. It is necessity. You have to get this right. We have to get this right for your health, your holiness, your joy. But I want to ask another question. Do you have to get this right in order to be saved? Now, I want you to understand what we're asking. We are seeing the Bible teach something that the majority of churches in America, I'm not, trying to be, I'm not trying to be judgmental in that, but I am being honest. The majority of churches in America do not believe or at least do not teach. I would guess that many, many pastors and churches in our land, they technically believe these things if you were to go and ask them but they never say it. So the people in the pews don't learn it. So are they okay to go further? The church groups that teach that you are saved by your merit, faith plus your works, are they okay? The churches that don't say anything about salvation, so never from the teaching position is there a call that says you must be saved and that salvation is in Jesus by faith. The churches who never say that, they just teach parables. Do unto others. Lessons on morality. How-to sermons on marriage and parenting or whatever the newest trend is in society. Are they okay? 
Friends, this is a massively important question. This really affects every single day. The assumed response that everybody just always gives is, well, of course we're all okay. I mean, we're all Christians. We're all trying to get to the same place. We all believe in Jesus. Now, those who say those kinds of things, they never give a biblical reference for why they believe it, but I'll give you a bullet for that gun. I think it's a blank, but I'll give you a bullet for the gun. Mark 9, Jesus said, whoever is not against us is for us. Well, there you go. It's all settled. Friends, not so fast. Did you know that you will be hard pressed to find two back-to-back pages in the New Testament where there is not a warning against false gospels? Now, just let that sink in. False gospels, meaning they're talking about Jesus. They're calling it the gospel, but it's a false gospel. I want to show you some places to try to show you the weight of why this might. Turn the book of Galatians with me for a moment. Look at Galatians chapter 1, find verse 6. Galatians 1, verse 6, the whole reason why this letter, and by the way, numerous letters of the New Testament were written, was to address heresy, to address false gospels. The book of Galatians was written to address a false gospel, and it's a false gospel that still exists today. In fact, it's very, very popular. Faith plus works equals merit before God, and I'm right. book of Galatians was written to address that heresy. Look what he says in verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Do you see the Bible say that to believe a false gospel is to be separated from Christ? Like, I want to make a clarification here. There's a big misunderstanding that could be had right now. You are not saved by believing the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You're not saved by believing some specifics about the gospel. You are saved by turning to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved by coming to the person of Jesus Christ, by receiving Christ. That's another helpful way that the book of John puts it. In John 1, verses 11 and 12, it says that Jesus came to his own, the Israelites, and they did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To receive Christ is to see who he is and to embrace him by believing in him. You are saved by in faith receiving the Lord Jesus Christ, not by your adherence to a certain doctrine. It is possible to believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone and go to hell, miss Christ. But while that is true, we also have to see what Galatians 1, Galatians 5, Matthew 7, Romans 16, 2 Timothy 4, and on and on and on. These passages show us that to believe false gospels means we miss Christ. We are walking away from Him. 
So see the warning. This is a pretty weighty way to say it. You desert him. By the way, in Galatians 1, here, keep reading, verse 7, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The word there is anathema. It means damned to hell. Paul said, if an angel shows up in your church gathering and preaches to you a gospel other than the gospel that's faithful to the scriptures, let that angel be damned to hell. How can you say this any heavier? This is weighty. How much does this matter? Do you have to get this right? Look at another passage. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at verse 4. Look what he says. He speaks to those within the Galatian church who have belie- now believe this false gospel. Verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I just don't know how anything bigger could be said. How any more weight could be put to this. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7 for a moment, please. Matthew chapter 7, this is the end. This is Jesus' conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, find verse 13. I'll read just a few sporadic verses here. Verse 13, look what is said. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Nobody wants to believe that. Oftentimes everybody wants to argue with that and always want to say, we want to find a way that the whole world gets in. Jesus says the, the way is wide that leads to destruction. You can't change Jesus' words and be right. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jump down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. It's interesting. Jesus is addressing a specific false gospel there. It's the false gospel of a gospel without repentance. Pray the prayer and you're okay. No repentance or a repentant faith. But also see this, friends, you can't just say, well, we're all Christians. We're all okay. You cannot assume that just because someone says they're a Christian that they are, and you cannot just assume that because someone uses the word gospel in their explanation that they have the true gospel. The whole of the New Testament warns about the dangers of Christian, quotation marks, Christian people, teachers, and teachings. Romans 16, watch out for their smooth and flattering speech. Boy, you can see that. Flattering speech. Acts 20, speaking to a group of pastors, from among your own selves, men will arise teaching perverse things, scattering the flock. 2 Timothy 4, the time will come when churches are known for accumulating preachers who just tell them what they want to hear, who tickle the ears. I'm suggesting to you that we're there and we've been there for quite some time now. The fact that I even need to argue this, and I'm not saying necessarily with you, but I am saying that in general, that we have to work so hard to actually say, you gotta get the gospel right, is a sign. It's a sign that our culture has just embraced everything. Anyone who says, Christian, all right, let's sign them up. 
anyone with a Bible and sounds flattering and nice. This matters. You have to get the gospel right. To go against what scripture teaches is a big deal. So let's continue asking some more questions as we try to get some more clarity on this. Do you have to know about the gospel to be saved by the gospel? There are those who argue. You know, well, there's some of these groups. Their church doesn't tell them that they need to be saved. That was my experience growing up. Growing to churches that we learned parables. We learned how to love one another. We studied some of the words of Jesus. I even believe that Jesus died and rose again, but not one time did I ever hear you must be saved and Jesus is the answer. So are they okay? Well, I have no doubt that God's grace is going to reach further than what I can imagine. But here is what I do see. I see Romans 10 say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but then follows it up with this question, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of Christ is another way of saying the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all perish. Will people repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness if they think they are already righteous? Will people repent and come to Christ if they think they're already fine? I get so tired of the universalism and the practical universalism that is coming out of churches where, where speakers address crowds, address a crowd and speak as though everybody already is okay and not calling to say, if you don't have Christ, you are on the outside of the covenant. You must have him. At the very least, you have to see this. They're at least in great spiritual danger. Maybe, maybe somebody could argue, okay, well maybe they don't hear that they gotta be saved, but if they believe that Jesus is there and some semblance of he died and rose again, I think they'll be okay. But you have to at least say from the scripture, they're in incredible spiritual danger. What of those who believe in false gospels? Are they okay? Let's get really specific. What of those who do not believe that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but who believe that we are saved by our works, who believe that we acquire merit? And there are many of those groups out there, by the way, and it exists even within our own denomination. There are heretics even within our own denomination. Let me tell you what I do not want you to do. I do not want you to just take my word for it. You saw Galatians 1 and Galatians 5. You desert Christ when you believe a false gospel. But let me show you another passage that gets really specific about this one. Romans chapter 9. I know that you may think I'm belaboring this point, but I submit to you this is one of the most pertinent issues in, in, in our culture and in our work of the gospel. Romans chapter 9, find verse 30 for a moment. Look, look and see what he says here. Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. 
they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jump down to chapter 10, verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, what did that just say? Why did it say that Israel, Paul was speaking about the majority, not all of them, but the majority, why did they miss eternal life? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Let that sink in. They thought they were right with God by their deeds, and so they did not turn to God in faith to be forgiven and to be justified. They did not turn to God in faith. Really, at the end of the day, you're trusting yourself if you believe you're justified by works. That's not trusting Christ. That's trusting in you. That's trusting in your abilities. And what does this say the result is? They missed salvation. If you can't see how big this matters, then let me spell this out to you. While our culture is becoming increasingly secular, still the majority of small town America considers themselves Christian and they acknowledge Jesus. So listen to me, how do you speak to your coworker? How do you speak to your family, your neighbor, your friend who think of themselves as Christian but do not have the true gospel that you must be saved and the answer is in Jesus? How do you address them? Are they our brothers? When you speak to a coworker who does not have the true gospel, do you speak of them in a sense of we Christians and give them approval by the way that you speak? Or do you consider them someone who needs the gospel and so you share the gospel and call them to trust in Christ? The difference is huge. The difference is who are we trying to reach? You're considering someone to marry. Scripture commands, absolutely commands for you to marry only someone who is in Christ. So you're considering someone who says that they're a Christian, attends church regularly, but doesn't believe that Jesus is the divine son of God. Is that man a Christian? You have to come to some conclusions about what you believe the true gospel is. So at the end of all of that, what do we conclude? Well, you notice that in some ways I've implied some answers, but I have to leave some Ambiguity there because I don't see absolute clarity in the scripture for every single circumstance. At the end of the day, there oftentimes comes a place where we say, I don't know, but I know they need the true gospel, even if for the sake of their joy. At the end of the day, what do we conclude? We have to get this right. We have to see the danger and if someone believes a false gospel, their soul is in danger and we regard them as danger. I can tell you that the Reformation hinged on getting the gospel right. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, and for the glory of God alone. But it also hinged on this belief, friends, that a false gospel doesn't save. That the false gospel that was being taught by the Catholic Church that you are justified by your works is a false gospel and it leads souls to hell. Now, I do not believe that every single person within a group matches that exactly because we all know that those within certain groups disagree with the official doctrine. Maybe they've read the Bible for themselves and they personally have called out to Christ, but it is this, the masses are being led into error. And I can tell you that the reason we planted this church here, this town, not in other places, but here 
is the conviction that the false gospel of salvation through my own merit does not save. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who has come for the salvation of souls. You need this. You must be made right with God. God has made that way available to you in Christ. Don't trust yourself. Look to Christ. Call out to him. Christian, you who have embraced Christ already, we have work to do. Because this is a world where not only there is secularism, this is a world where false gospels abound. And there is the need for the true message of the gospel to be spoken. And if you are here, and maybe you've gone to church your whole life, but you've never heard this, that you must be saved. And that answer is in Christ. Look to Christ. Receive him and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord God in heaven, Father, I want to ask that you will continue to give us clarity. I want to ask that you will continue to show us the gospel and how much the gospel matters. I just want to ask God that every believer in this congregation this week, we will get really practical with this and we will explain the gospel. Lord, that we will be used of you. Please bless us as we leave, oh God. Take care of us, we pray. And we ask all this through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's message titled, Justified Part 2. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.